All right, so today we are talking about the fate of the unrighteous, meaning those who don't know Christ, which is eternal condemnation. Again, a real cheery lesson. Uh, I think you understand why this topic was assigned to me. I think I'm probably the most likely staff member to go to hell, and so that's why they gave me this topic. And, uh, but next week, we're going to be talking about eternal life, so please come back for the good news uh, of, uh, of that next week. So we're kind of doing this lesson in two parts. We're going to talk about uh, judgment of the wicked today, and then we'll talk about the judgment of the righteous next week. And so again, uh, please come. Now, before we get into such a topic, I need to, to mention a few things in case you are uh, an anxious person, a scared person, someone doubting your salvation, whatever it might be. So let me, uh, let me pastor you a little bit, and then we will teach. So there there are three reasons why we're talking about eternal condemnation, okay? The first is because it's in the Bible. We should not be ashamed or afraid of anything in the Bible. The Bible is perfect. It is God's Word. It is something that God wants us to know. Even things that don't apply to us as Christians, like hell, God still wants us to know about these things, and so that's why we're studying it. The second thing you need to know is this. If you are a Christian, none of this fear, condemnation, any of that kind of stuff applies to you. Hell is real, but it's not real for you as a Christian, okay? God's wrath has already been poured out upon your sin in Christ, therefore there's no wrath left for you, and so you don't have to endure the wrath of God for eternity, and so you need to take a big breath and realize this is only scary for those outside of Christ. For those in Christ, we don't have that fear, as First John will say, that perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and there's no more punishment for us as Christians, okay? Uh, yes, God will lovingly discipline us in this life because he cares for us, but there is no more wrath. There is no more punishment for Christians that has been poured out on Christ. And then the third reason is this. If you don't understand the horrors of hell, you will not understand how great God's salvation is for you, okay? Jesus tells a parable in Luke 7 of a, uh, a moneylender, and there's this guy that, there, there are these two guys. One owes him a bunch of money, and one owes him a little bit of money, and he cancels the debt of both, and he says, Jesus says, who will love that moneylender more? And Simon says, well, I guess the one that had the bigger debt canceled. And he says, you're right, you're right. So if you think that God has delivered us just from a small punishment, you'll think that God loves you a small amount. If you think that God has just delivered you from something temporally, you'll think that, uh, that God only loves you temporally. And so what you need to understand is the reason we have to see how bad hell is is so we realize how great God's love is, how great his mercy is. Yes, he's forgiven us for our sins, but our sins merit something much, much, much worse, and God has delivered us from that as well. And so keep those things in mind. Uh, in the same way that you see a bright light better in a dark room than out in the daytime, you see God's grace better uh, when you contrast it with uh, the terribleness of eternal condemnation. Now, having said that, if you're stressed out after this, you're freaking out, you need to chat during the week, set up a meeting with us. We are happy to talk. I have wrestled a bunch with assurance of my own salvation, uh, fear of hell. I'm the worst person to teach this lesson because of that. Preparing for it was awful. And, uh, but I'd be happy to, uh, to chat with you and encourage you. Okay, happy to chat with you and encourage you. So we'll end with some more encouragement as well. But let's get into the fate of the unrighteous, eternal condemnation. Let me give you some definitions, okay? First, I'll give you grudems. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. All right, we're starting out good. As we, as we embark on Halloween season, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. And now let me give you Parkway's official position, okay? This is from our statement of faith. In the consummation, this means at the very end of the end of time, in the consummation, Satan with his host and all those outside Christ will be finally, fully, and forever separated from the benevolent presence of God, enduring eternal conscious punishment, okay? A lot of times people define hell as the absence of the presence of God. It's better to define it as the fullness of the presence of God to punish, okay? You can't get away from God. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. He's not a spatial being. And so it's not that like God doesn't know what's going on in hell because he's not there. Rather, when we talk about God's presence, typically we mean his presence to bless. So if we say God is here in this room right now, we mean we feel his presence to bless. It's not that he's absent from hell. He's fully present in hell, but you only feel his presence to bring wrath and punishment. But I want you to notice five things from our statement of faith here on this idea. Number one, Satan and demons will receive condemnation. Okay, sometimes we have a tendency to think like the devil's the one who kind of runs hell. He's got his little French mustache and his little pokey, 
you know, whatever that little trident thing he has, and he's got his little whippy tail, and he's torturing people, okay, down in hell. He, like, runs hell. That's not the biblical perception, okay? God runs hell, and the devil himself is being tormented with you. So you're like, oh, this is awful, and you look over, and he's like, oh, this is awful, and you're like, oh, man, we're both going through this. This is the worst. And so you need to understand that Satan and demons are tormented as well. Number two, you need to understand that non-Christians will receive condemnation. That's what we mean in this lesson by the unrighteous. We're all unrighteous in our actions, but for Christians, our status is as those as righteous. When I say unrighteous in this lesson, I mean non-Christians, those who have not had their sins forgiven. Number three, they will be separated from God's benevolent presence, like we just talked about, but remain under his wrathful presence. Number four, notice that the punishment is eternal. It never ends. This is the scariest thing about hell is its duration, right? So if you have been tormented for a trillion years, a trillion, trillion years, take all the number of the sands of the seashore and multiply them by all the number of the sands of the seashore for every beach on earth, after you've suffered that many years, you are no closer to infinity than when you first began, okay? This is the most difficult doctrine we hold as Christians, okay? And then number five, the pain of the punishment is eternal. Notice in our statement of faith that the punishment is conscious punishment, okay? It's not just that the punishment's eternal, it's that the pain, which is the punishment, is eternal. We'll talk more about that in the lesson. So with that in mind, let's get into some New Testament terminology around the idea of hell, condemnation, etc. Now, when we talk about hell, there are several different words in Greek in the New Testament that are translated that we typically all lump together as hell, but they're actually different concepts. So the first things I want you to see is this. First, there's the place where you go if you're lost and you die before judgment day, before the resurrection, okay? okay? There's like hell as a waiting room. And then after judgment and after resurrection, there's new and improved hell, right, i.e. the lake of fire. So you need to understand what we're talking about kind of two different things. When you die, if you're a Christian, you're west with Christ. If you're not a Christian, you go to some place where you're waiting judgment, but that's not the final step, okay? Heaven and hell are waiting rooms for new and improved heaven, i.e. new heavens, new earth, or new and improved hell, i.e. the lake of fire, okay? So to quote N.T. Wright, we're interested in life after life after death. And so, uh, so let's first of all look at some terms that are used for hell pre-judgment day. If somebody's lost, your neighbor who's lost, he's, you know, I don't know, some atheist guy, he dies today, where does he go? So let's talk about some of these different terms, okay? Sometimes the New Testament uses the term Hades, Okay, Hades. Uh, it is a place for the dead described as a shadowy netherworld. Okay? It is similar to the idea in Hebrew of Sheol, but it is not the same as our concept of hell. Okay? So Hades is similar to the idea of Sheol. In the Old Testament, they'll talk about Sheol. Where is Sheol? Sheol is the place of the dead. It's where your soul goes after death. It's seen as this shadowy netherworld where you're waiting for God to resurrect. Okay, we're waiting for God to resurrect you and to judge people and to do these kind of things. But it's not the same thing as our modern concept kind of of hell. That's the idea of Hades. The next one is the fulake, okay? The fulake, the underworld, similar to Hades. That term is used uh, not only in the New Testament but in other places in Greek literature to just refer to this underworld, this place under the ground, kind of if you want to think of it that way, where you go and wait for judgment. And then the abusos, the abyss, which is a pit where the wicked wait for judgment. The New Testament will talk about these, uh, these disobedient angels, these demons that are cast down and are waiting in this pit, if you will, for judgment, okay? That's what, now, so that's kind of what happens right when you die if you're lost. That's where you go. You're not with Christ. If you have more questions on this, by the way, Jeff did a teaching on the intermediate state. What happens in between, uh, you know, after you die but before you are resurrected and have eternal life? What, uh, what happens? So feel free to listen to that lecture. Now, post-judgment day. Now, these are the terms that are typically used for what we think of when we think of as hell. We think of this eternal punishment, pain, burning, these kind of things. There are, uh, I've given you here three really important terms. The first is Gehenna, okay? The first is Gehenna. You've probably heard of this idea of Gehenna. That is close to what we think of today as hell, okay? Now, it is a place of punishment for the wicked after judgment. It gets its name. It's based on the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, okay? The Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was a burning trash site outside of Jerusalem. And it was also a place where people used to practice child sacrifice under the reins of those like Ahaz and Manasseh, okay? You can go to the valley of Ben-Hinnom today. I've been there. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to hell, okay? It's not a beautiful place. 
And uh, it's this place outside of Jerusalem. So you can stand up on Jerusalem and you can look down into the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And uh, it was this burning trash heap. It's where they brought all their trash and it was always burning. That's why you have worms eating stuff. You have fire always going. And it was specifically a place that in certain places in Israelite history where they would practice child sacrifice. That's why the New Testament authors are using that image to describe judgment. They're saying, think of the worst thing that you can have experienced thus far, oh, Jerusalemites. What's the worst thing you know of? It's a burning trash heap where there are bugs and nasty animals and things are always burning, where we used to practice child sacrifice, so it's got this demonic feel to it. That's the language that the New Testament is going to use to describe this concept of judgment, this concept of hell. That's where you get the idea of Gehenna. Now, there's another one, and this one actually occurs, uh, this same term occurs in Greek mythology. That doesn't mean the Bible's uh, Greek mythology, but again, the Bible uses Greek, and that language has been going on for a long time before the New Testament is written, and it is the term Tataris, okay? Tataris, also translated as hell. It was thought of by the Greeks as the place lower than Hades where the wicked were punished, okay? So for a Greek thinker, everyone dies and goes to Hades, but the wicked, those who are the worst, go to the place of punishment in Hades. They go to Tartarus. They go to the lowest of the low, okay? When we talk about heaven and hell in church history, which is a lecture we're going to be doing this semester as well, we'll talk about where we get this idea of levels of hell with Dante's Inferno and such, but we will uh, we'll do that in a few weeks. And then lastly, one that you are probably familiar with, Tain Lemain Tupuros, the lake of fire, the place of eternal physical torment for the devil and non-Christians after the resurrection. That term is most famous for its use in uh, the book of Revelation as we've seen, but that's where you get the idea of the lake of fire. So just to simplify all these kind of things, you have kind of uh, waiting room hell, all right? If you're lost and you die, you go to waiting room hell. And then after the resurrection, you have real bad hell where there's re- you have a resurrected body and it's painful and fiery and these kind of things. And the first three terms typically refer to this, and the second group of three terms typically refer to that. Make sense? Did I make it a lot clearer by just drawing a circle and then a you know, wiggly circle? Did that really help? Okay, there you go. So, all right, next. Let's look at a few Bible verses. Again, just to encourage you, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about any of this. You get to have bliss where there's no more weeping, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, okay? And so, uh, but let's talk about the terrible stuff first before we get into that. So the wicked will be judged and condemned. Let's look at a few passages. There are more than this, by the way. I've just included a few. The Bible talks a lot about judgment, a lot about what it'll be like, et cetera. But let's get into uh, just a few. Revelation 20, 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You are not saved by your actions. What your actions do is show whether or not you're regenerate. Your actions show whether or not you've come to know Christ. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead. Do you see that right there? Notice how death and Hades are used kind of as a hendiades there. They're used together. Hades gives up its dead. Why? Because it's a waiting room. It's a waiting room. Death and Hades give up their dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades itself, is the idea, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is seen as this final terrible place that even death and Hades and the devil are judged in, okay? It is, again, the new and improved hell. It's uh, the worst of the worst. Acts 17, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. In the Old Testament, God was really focused with Israel and the other nations just kind of did their thing, okay? But he's saying now that Christ has come and the gospel has gone to all nations and you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian, the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, all these passages, I'm just trying to, I want you to see that there is a day of judgment and a day of wrath coming. We'll talk about what that'll be like in just a second. 2 Peter 2.9, then the, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If you don't believe in election, do something with that verse. Matthew 12, 36 through 37, I tell you on the day of judgment, 
people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now, that is terrifying for me because I like to run my mouth, okay? Uh, people will be judged for every careless tweet, every careless Facebook post, etc. For every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Because the words show what your heart is like. The Bible says that uh, your mouth, your words are the overflow of the heart. And so uh, that's kind of what it's referencing there, okay? So what you need to see is there is judgment coming. Next week, again, we'll talk about judgment for Christians and the fact that we uh, are covered in Christ and we will be okay. But today we are talking about bad kind of judgment, judgment that involves wrath those for, the, for those that are non-Christians. Now here's this next one. Now this one's tough. This lesson gets worse and worse and worse and then I let out some air at the end, okay? Listen to this subtitle that I've put here. You can tell how difficult this lesson was to prepare for me. Condemnation will consist of intense psychological and physical torment. Subtitle one. Let's look at some passages. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and what? And body in hell. Okay, notice this is something after the resurrection. I've had a skeptic mock me one time and say, the idea of hell is ridiculous. How can a soul burn? And I said, that's why you have a body. It's resurrected and it feels pain and that's what's happening. Don't just fear those who can destroy the body. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 25, 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is this a reference to? You ever visited like a Civil War museum or seen some type of like Civil War movie and they have to hack off a guy's leg? Because back then, this is in the 1800s, you would get a blister and die, okay? It's not a good time to be alive. When people ask me, they're like, if you could live in any time in world history, when would you live? I'm like, the future, right? Like now or the future. I don't want to get a blister and die. I like showering every day, these kind of things. And so uh, this is an age, though, where you get shot and you get a little piece of that uh, lead ball or broken bone or whatever, and they just hack off your leg. Now, what do they do? They give you like a belt to bite down on. Welcome to anesthesia. Uh, you know, 200 years ago or whatever. They give you a, a belt 150 years ago. They, they give you this belt to bite down on and you, the pain is so intense that people are biting through the belts. That's the idea of the imagery here. The idea of the gnashing of teeth here has to do with torment. It has to do with pain. When you're in a lot of pain, you wince and that's the idea. That's why it's linked to the idea of weeping and it's linked to the idea elsewhere of a worm that doesn't die, etc. Mark 9, 47, 48. Speaking of that worm... And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The idea is that the torment continues. Typically, in our day-to-day -day lives, fires go out. I don't know if you know that or not, but if you lit a fire in your fireplace last Christmas, it's not still going, okay? It goes out. But this fire doesn't go out. And typically, worms die. Like, just go fishing, okay? They die. But these worms don't die. The idea is that the torment continues uh, forever. Luke 16, 24. This is this example of a, a Lazarus. And there's a lot of question on whether or not this is just a parable or whether or not he's talking about hell now or hell in the final state. But any, however you take it, the idea of torment is still there. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And then perhaps the worst one, Revelation 14, 10 through 11. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, that's Christ, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Okay? So... This lesson's encouraging. Not only will God judge the wicked, but the way he will judge the wicked is through pain and anguish, both psychologically and physically. Imagine the worst psychological problems you can have where there's fear and anxiety and you're having a panic attack and all these kind of things. That plus physical pain, okay? The worst physical pain you can have. God, who can do anything, if he wants to bless you, he can make that blessing really good. But if he wants to hurt you, he can hurt you like no one else. Okay? It can hurt you like no one else. That's what this text is saying. And not only, okay, so, so let, me, let me say it this way. Some of the imagery that's used of hell is imagery. I agree with that. How can it be dark and yet there be fire at the same time? I agree that some of it's imagery. But it's imagery 
doesn't take away from the fact that it is literal pain. Is it imagery for good things or imagery for bad things? It's imagery for bad things. Charles Spurgeon says this. For those that would say hell is just kind of an image, he says this. Now, do not begin telling me that this is metaphorical fire. Who cares for that? I like that, okay? Who cares for that? If a man were to threaten to give me a metaphorical blow to the head, I should care very little about it. He would be welcome to give me as many as he pleased. If you want to metaphorically punch me, you can do that all day long. I don't care, okay? And what say the wicked? We do not care about metaphorical fires, but they are real, sir. Yes, as real as yourself. There is a real fire in hell as truly as you have now a real body, a fire exactly like that which we have on earth and everything except this that it will not consume, though it will torture you. If you are bodily resurrected, which you will be, the pain is somehow bodily and it will be awful forever, okay? Now let's look at the next little subheading of this joyful lesson. The conscious experience of pain and condemnation lasts forever, okay? Put that up as your Twitter bio. Have that crocheted on a pillow in the guest room in your house, okay? And when people stay, just let them wonder why you've put that there. Freak them out. Rent out an Airbnb, whatever. The conscious experience of pain and condemnation lasts forever. Let's talk a little bit about this. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, let me tell you why that's really important. If you think that the torments in hell are temporary, then you have to think the blessings of God in heaven are temporary because the exact same word in the exact same context is used here to contrast eternal life with eternal condemnation. This is saying that that judgment is eternal. The punishment is eternal. Notice that that's what it says, and these will go away into eternal what? The punishment is what's eternal, okay? 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Notice the phrase suffer. Notice the phrase punishment. Notice that it's eternal. Notice here that the word destruction can't just mean that you cease to be. It can't just mean that it's over because it's eternal, okay? And so realize that when the Bible uses terms like destruction or death, that doesn't mean cease to be. Revelation 14, 10 through 11, which we read, I want to read it again. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength, I did that last time too, into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast, those that are following Rome, not following Christ, living in sexual morality, etc., and its image, and whoever receives the mark of of its name. Mark 9, 47 through 48. Just look at the end of that. We just read this. But it says that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The idea there is ever. The tormenting worm, if you want to say it that way, And the tormenting fire, if you want to say it that way, always keep going. There's always something for the worm to eat. There's always something for the fire to burn. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Notice that the fire there is eternal. Okay. Now, what I've given you so far is the historic Christian position. The historic Christian position on hell is that you'll be bodily resurrected and that the torment of hell lasts forever as you're conscious of that torment forever. That's the historic view of hell. That's the view of hell in Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and Greek Orthodoxy. That is the historic view of hell. There is another view that some modern evangelicals have begun holding called annihilationism. And I want to be gracious because there's a guy I really like who's a theologian named John Stott who's very clearly a believer, but he holds this position. But you need to understand the position itself is a condemned position, okay? This idea that the conscious experience of hell won't last forever was condemned in the 6th century. It was called the Synod of Constantinople, and they condemned anyone who said that you would not experience the punishment and pain of hell forever. And so this is a condemned position, but I want to spend some time trying to refute it and explain it to you because you will run into a lot of people that hold this position. Let me explain what the position is. Some people think that you will be tormented for a time if you're lost, and then God will take you out of existence, okay? So they'll say the punishment is forever. You forever don't exist. That's what they'll say. God punishes you for a time, let's say a thousand years, just to to have a nice round number, thousand years, and then he takes you out of existence. You literally cease to be. So the punishment is that you no longer exist, And the way that it's eternal is because you're not going to ever come back into existence. For all eternity, you're going to cease to be. You will be nothingness, 
which isn't a thing, for all eternity, okay? That's kind of the idea of uh, annihilationism. And so we'll talk a little bit about this position. This is not the historic Christian position, so I'm gonna push against it a little bit, but I want you to understand what this is. The belief that lost people will eventually be annihilated, i.e. cease to exist, rather than undergoing the eternal conscious torment of hell. Some evangelicals hold this position, but it is not the historic position of either Protestant or Catholic Christianity. Modern proponents are those such as Clark Pinnock, John Wenham, you might not know who these guys are, they're, they're big name modern theologians, and most famously, John Stott. It is the official position of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So if you're Seventh-day Adventist, this is your official position, is that eventually you are just annihilated, okay? Now, I think that the annihilationism position comes from a heart of people that love people, okay? So I, don't act, I, think, I think it's wrong theologically, but I think it comes from people who realize I can't stand the idea of a loving God tormenting people for all eternity and it never gets better and it's, they never have another chance and they're never brought up. There has to be something else. There has to be something else. Listen to this great confession by one of the major proponents of annihilationism, Clark Pinnock. He says this, I appreciate his honesty. He says this, I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion and broader theological considerations. Not first of all on scriptural grounds, It just does not make any sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. It's time for evangelicals to come out and say that the the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment, okay? So you see the argument there that he's making. He's saying, based on other things we know about God's love in Scripture, maybe hell is just you being out of existence. Yes, it's forever, But the foreverness is not the conscious experience of pain, it's that you don't exist anymore. That's the foreverness, okay? Uh, A great book, if you want to to, to research this further uh, against this position, there's a book by Chris Morgan, he's the editor, it's called Hell Under Fire, which is a great, great title, of course. Uh, It's called Hell Under Fire, and basically it is a a pretty good response refuting annihilationism. Uh, Al Mohler, other figures contribute to it, etc., But I want to give here some arguments that people make for annihilationism, and I want to shoot those down biblically to the best that I can, okay? So let's summarize real quick. Somebody give me what is the traditional doctrine of hell? Eternal torment, right? What's eternal about it is the torment, okay? What is the annihilationism position? What's eternal? Yeah, non-existence, okay? Non-existence, that you don't exist at all. Okay, that's what's eternal in the annihilationism position. So what I want to do is I want to give you some arguments that people use for annihilationism, and then I want to try to address those, okay? Here's the first one. So, so these points here, numbers one, two, three, et cetera, those are the points the annihilationist would make, and then underneath that are my refutations, okay? Here's the first one. The annihilationist will say what is eternal about the lost person's punishment is that they don't exist forever, not their conscious experience about pain, okay? It's not their conscious experience of pain. The first problem I have with that is that's not what the text actually says, especially in Revelation, okay? Notice that it's not the fact that someone doesn't exist forever that's the punishment. It's the fact that they feel pain forever. Look again in Revelation 14, 10 through 11. And the smoke of their torment, so notice you can't have smoke without the torment. The smoke and their torment go together. It's not just smoke of the person, it's of their torment, goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. If they were brought out of existence, they would have rest, Okay? They have no rest, day or night. The idea is that it's the pain that lasts forever. Okay? Notice in this text, one, they continue to exist forever. Two, they have no rest forever. Three, it's the pain of their uh, uh, smoke that goes up forever. It's the smoke of their torment. And then four, something that doesn't exist has no qualities. Here, here's why I say this. Everybody look at me. I've heard people say, Zach, they cease to exist, but their smoke is what goes up forever. Let me just give you this. Da, 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 da. This is a good philosophical point. Something that doesn't exist has no properties. Okay? How tall is the boogeyman? How tall? The question doesn't make sense because he doesn't exist. How heavy is the boogeyman? How much smoke does the boogeyman have? None. You can't say these people are brought out of existence, yet the smoke of their torment goes up forever because it's their smoke, and it's the smoke of their torment, okay? Whatever you think about the smoke rising, you have to think about the object that it's coming from, which is the person, okay? 
One more thing against this point. Also notice that evil humans have the same fate as the devil and demons. If you think humans are annihilated, you have to hold the same view for the devil and demons. The punishment for the devil and demons are the same as for those that are lost people. So if you hold that God just brings humans out of existence, you have to say that he lets the devil off the hook from this eternal punishment as well because the Bible will not separate out what happens to different people in the lake of fire. It's all seen as kind of the same bad, okay? Number two, the idea of an immortal soul is a Greek idea and not something taught in the Bible. So here's what some people will say. In certain strands of Greek thinking, so for example, Plato. Plato thought that the human soul was eternal, that we've always existed, we saw the forms back in eternity, and now we get embodied, but our souls are eternal. That's a Greek idea. That is not a biblical idea, okay? Your soul is not eternal. God creates your soul. And so what some people will say is, well, the whole idea of hell lasting forever came from this conception of an eternal soul that people had. That argument misses the entire point. Your soul's not eternal. God created it, but guess what? God can keep it existing throughout eternity, just like he does for those that are believers. He keeps it existing. So only God is inherently immortal. That's why the Bible says that God alone possesses immortality, but he can grant a gift of keeping things in existence for eternity, which he does for saved people and he does for lost people with different different results, obviously. Some people will say, number three, that in the Bible, words like forever and eternal don't always literally mean forever and eternal, okay? They don't literally mean forever and eternal. Now, here's the thing you, understand, you need to understand. That's true. Sometimes when the Bible uses the term forever or eternal, it just means a really long time, okay? A really long time. So if I say to my wife, I'll love you forever, I mean a really long time, okay? Uh, or something like that. So the Bible will say forever or eternal and not always literally mean eternal. So how do we know that it does literally mean eternal, though, when it comes to talking about hell? Well, this is where Matthew 25, 46 is so important. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there are metaphorical uses of eternal to mean a long time, but then there are uses that literally mean eternal, that it will keep going. What this text is saying is whatever you hold of saved people, you have to hold of lost people in the opposite direction. So if you hold that there's eternal reward for Christians and they experience it forever, you have to hold that there is eternal punishment for lost people and they experience forever. The exact same Greek word is used in the exact same sentence in talking about eternal in this thing. Eternal punishment contrasted with eternal life, okay? So it can't mean in this passage a really long time. Uh, In Revelation 14, 11, The context shows that the word forever also literally means forever. How do we know? A few reasons. One, it says forever and ever. Notice there's a modification. Typically, when the word forever is used of just a long time, it doesn't say things like forever and ever. When you add that and ever, the idea is that continuation, okay? And then uh, number two, it modifies the, uh, I'm sorry. And then, wait, I'm not, list my spot. It's coming to me. And then number two, it modifies the torment by saying that they have no rest day and night. So the idea of no rest day and night is also this idea of continuing, okay? Listen to this great quote by Herman Bovink, who's one of the great reformed theologians of the modern era. Life in scripture is never mere existence and death is never the same as annihilation, okay? When the Bible talks about death or eternal death or destruction, don't think ceases to exist. Think destruction, think punishment, think torment, which leads us to point number four. Some annihilationists will say there are passages in the Bible that talk about judgment using terms that sound finite, like destruction, death, perish, and others. It's true the Bible uses those terms, but it misses the point. The question is not, please hear this, does the Bible use terms such as destroy? But rather, when the Bible uses terms such as destroy, should we think it means annihilate? If we come across the word perish or death or destroy, we have to ask ourselves, is this destruction meant to be finite, like when you destroy Jericho, or infinite? And the Bible answers that for us as well, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal what? Destruction. Typically, when you think of destruction, you think that it's over, right? Like if I destroy you in a basketball game, the basketball game's over. If I destroy a fence, it's out of here. It's just scraps of wood. Well, here it says that the destruction is eternal and it's punishment and there's the word suffering. So it seems to say that it is eternal. So don't just say death is finite or perish is finite, so judgment is finite. That would be a logical fallacy, okay? We may think that the word destruction means that non-believers will be annihilated until we see that it says they have an eternal destruction. The punishment is destruction in the sense of judgment, 
and not in the sense that the person is destroyed out of existence. Number five, this is one of the most common ones. This is really what I think strikes at the heart of this issue. It would be unjust or unloving for God to eternally torment finite creatures who commit temporal sins. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this. The punishment is meant to fit the crime. If you get pulled over for, the, for a ticket, does a police officer come to your window and say, you were speeding, I have the right of the state to hereby execute you, do you have any last words, and then just shoot you? Not typically, right? Can we at least agree not typically? Okay, I don't know. If that's already happened to you, you're not in this room. Okay, you're not in this room if that's already happened to you. You get a Class C misdemeanor. Big deal. I'm not encouraging you to speed, but big deal, right? Yet if you commit a felony, well, now you've got jail time, and now you've got this record and all these kind of things, and the punishment has a tendency to typically fit the crime. Terrible crimes like capital murder can get a capital response. You've taken someone else's life unjustly, so your life is taken justly, etc. What people will say is, it is unfair for God to punish people forever for sins that they've only committed temporally, okay? If, if a man steals something, how long did that take? A few minutes? If you murder somebody, maybe you planned it for several months and then you murder somebody, that took several months of being evil and then also committing the evil act. But no matter how bad the act is that you do, to punish you eternally is always way overboard. You understand that eternity is not just like a bigger number. It's not like there's like a hundred, a thousand eternity. It is an entirely different concept, this concept of never-endingness, okay? And so they would say, no matter what crime you commit, no matter how sinful you are, yes, it's bad. Yes, it should be punished some, which is why most annihilationists will say God should torment you for a while, but not eternally, okay? Here's what that objection misses. The reason the punishment is eternal is not because of how long it took you to commit. The reason the punishment is eternal is because it's committed against an eternal being. Do you see that? I don't know if you guys remember when George Bush was president and that guy threw that sandal at him at that press conference. I don't know if you've ever seen that video. If I just throw my shoe at David, nothing really happens. I mean, the elders would probably talk to me and and, uh, I'd probably get a, a slap on the wrist, but nothing big happens. You throw your shoe at the president, that guy went to jail for life for assaulting a foreign dignitary. What happens when you throw your sandal at God? What happens when you throw your shoe at an infinite being, an eternal being? The only punishment that then makes sense is an infinite punishment. If you don't think that the torment of hell should be eternal, your view of sin is too low and your view of God's glory is too low. That's exactly what it merits. God is so wholly other. He is so infinite, so powerful, so awesome that for you to steal a cookie merits damnation forever if your sins are not covered by Christ. That's what I'm saying. If that is new information to you, your view of God is far too small. Your view of God is far too small. Number six, some people will say in the annihilationist camp that the eternal lake of fire, because notice, it's pretty hard to get around that Revelation passage. They have no rest day and night, forever and ever, smoke of their torment. The devil and demons are in there. The lake of fire is burning forever. It seems to be very foreverish. The lake of fire, some will say, is just for death and Hades, and maybe even the devil, but not for humans. So I've heard people say that. They'll say God will torment humans, then take them out of existence, but he'll continue tormenting the devil. The problem with that is that's just literally not what the text says. It's just not factually correct. Those in the lake of fire are those humans who have followed the beast, Revelation 14, 11, and humans whose name was not found in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20, 15. Revelation 21, 6 names explicitly who will be in the lake of fire. The cowardly, these are all humans, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you can't say this is just the punishment for the devil and God just annihilates humans. The punishment for demons and the punishment for humans is the same. Number seven, last one. Some will say fire burns things up so that they cease to exist. Okay? They'll say it talks about fire, and if you have fire on you for any amount of time, it burns you up, so eventually you have to cease to exist. Okay? Now think about how strange that argument is. It's basically saying, because fire burns things up on earth, it must do the same in eternity. But that doesn't make sense. Worms die on earth, but not in Mark 9, apparently. 
And fire goes out on earth, but not in Mark 9. If those two things are eternal for the damned, then why would torment not be as well? This argument misunderstands how analogies work in Scripture. Also, as we've already seen, the fire doesn't completely annihilate the lost because their smoke goes up forever and ever. So what some people will say is, Zach, if there's fire to keep it fueled, to keep it burning, uh, you'd have a body. And as that burned off and turned into smoke, you wouldn't exist anymore. That's a really weird way to do eschatology. Worms die on earth, they don't die in eternity. People die on earth, they don't die in eternity. Uh, the fires go out on earth. Again, your Christmas fire is still not going from last year. They don't go out in eternity. We're talking about a whole other realm. We're talking about a whole different kind of thing. You can't say because a fire burns up bodies on earth, it will do the same in heaven and they will cease to be. By the way, when a fire burns up something on earth, that person doesn't cease to be. They die and then they either go to heaven or hell. Okay? So they continue even to exist even in that analogy. So with all of that, let me now give you some conclusions. Okay? First, Hell is meant to be scary. It is meant to get our attention and to show us how holy God is, okay? Let me say it this way. Um, there was a pastor I heard recently say something that was really great. He said he was talking to this guy who was not a Christian, and the guy just said, I just, I can't get around the idea of hell. I, I, I just, I can't stand the idea of hell. And he said, that's the point. Like, it's not meant to be, well, I like Christianity, and the idea of hell's great. Nobody likes the idea of hell because nobody likes the idea of God's glory to that extent. Okay? And so we need to understand hell is meant to be awful. This is meant to be an awful doctrine. This is the punishment you get when you offend a holy God and you have no atonement and no propitiation and no substitute in your place. Okay? That is what our sin merits. So you need to understand that it is supposed to be awful. It is supposed to be scary. This is the worst doctrine we hold as Christians from our perspective, not from God's perspective. He's not embarrassed about this. This is the hardest thing that we hold. Teaching people about election is tough. Teaching people about, uh, you know, Christian morality is tough. Saying Jesus is the only way to salvation is tough. This, though, offends those who are even Christians. Those other topics offend some Christians, but some Christians love it. There are very few Christians that say God's doctrine of hell, the way it's traditionally been defined, is good. It's good, okay? But I want to end the same way that I began by saying this. If you are a Christian, you don't have to worry about this. In fact, this should produce rejoicing in your heart for two reasons. One, you know that God is going to judge those who deserve it. You ever watching a trial or a movie or reading the news where there's some serial pedophile rapist or whatever and he just walks free and you think justice has not been done, right? You think justice, is, there's some school shooter that kills a bunch of kids and then kills himself and you think justice has not been done. Justice will be done always. God will give justice to people that deserve his justice, okay? That's going to happen. In a small way, that should produce rejoicing in your heart because God cares about justice and so should we. The other thing you need to understand is the overwhelming mercy that God has given to you and I, okay? If you think God's just forgiven you for your sins and you get to be a little bit happier now, who cares, if you realize that God's forgiven you for your sins and he has saved you from hell, that's pretty amazing. If your house is burning and a firefighter comes in and breaks in and, and gets you out of your house so you don't burn temporarily, you're like, man, that guy's great. We're gonna go get pizza and I'm gonna get that guy a present and I'm gonna call him every day and thank him, okay? But if you were somehow in some sort of eternally burning house and someone rescued out of it, you'd be like, yes, this is such a better gift. That other firefighter, he's nothing. I like the eternal firefighter, right? That's the idea is that it produces this hope it produces this joy. God loves you so much that though you and I deserve hell, that's what we deserve. If God is fair, God gives people what we deserve, we all get hell. But he loves us so much that he redeems us from hell. Not only that, he forgives us. He adopts us. That's crazy. Forgiving my enemies is one thing. Adopting them is another. God loves us that much. So that should produce a tremendous amount of joy in your heart. Hell is not a reality for you as a Christian. You don't need to have that fear anymore, okay? I think a lot of us think of hell as, so Immanuel Kant, the uh, great German philosopher, described rules as a deterrent for actions. So he said, if you were going to go to your mistress's house, he puts this at the, uh, in the Critique of Practical Reason, if you were going to go to your mistress's house and somebody put gallows up in front of that house and you knew as soon as you were done committing your act you had to be hanged, it would be a deterrent for you, Okay? The problem with that is sometimes we love our sin so much, it's not a deterrent. 
It's not a deterrent for us, okay? Hell doesn't need to be that way for you as a Christian. I think a lot of us as Christians want to hang on a little bit to the idea of hell to scare us into righteousness. That never works, okay? Fear produces despair, which causes you to plunge headlong into sin. What you need is grace, that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment, but there's no more punishment for you. And so you can follow God out of the motivation of love and joy and grace and not because of scariness. So let me read you a few passages. John 3.16, maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've been to a football game and somebody behind the the stands is holding up John 3.16. Now they hold up Matthew 7, don't judge. But back before the world got weird, they held up John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now listen to this. This is a passage we've heard so many times we just ignore the good news here. That whoever believes in him should not perish. What's that perish mean? Be condemned. The eternal perishing we've just talked about but have what? Eternal life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now look at this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I've heard people say, but you can jump out of Jesus's hand on your own. No one is a universal phrase. No one is a negative universal. It includes everybody, yourself included, okay? This passage is not any encouragement if Jesus says, I'll preserve you and no one can jump out of my hand unless you sin too much and you want to, then you're, then you're toast. That doesn't bring the encouragement. No one can jump out of his hand, including you. Revelation 21, three through four. Now listen to this. In light of what we've seen about the judgment in Revelation, listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be uh, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jeffrey, Why don't you come on up here and we'll talk about condemnation. All right, we had a lot of questions. Most, I think, we have ever gotten. Woo, you guys love hell. You guys love hell. So, as a reminder, we will not have uh, an opportunity probably to get to all of these questions. Uh, I don't think it's possible. And so, if. You texted in a question, and uh, that is an area that you really want to, to uh, think through and, and have some uh, helpful thoughts through, then uh, feel free to send us an email or come chat with us afterwards. We'd love to do that. So we're not ignoring any questions. We just simply won't get to all of them. First one, uh, there is an idea that the absence of God's presence is actually worse than the presence of God's wrath, since the presence of one of God's perfect attributes is still good. How should we respond to that claim? Yeah, so, so two thoughts on that. One is, there is no such thing as the absence of God's presence altogether. Nothingness is not a thing. Okay, we have a tendency to think, like, when we think of God made the world out of nothingness, like there's this clump of nothingness, and that's what he used. That's what, nothing is a, a word that we use that actually makes no sense. It's a word that we use to talk about complete absence of thing. But if you're using words, you're not talking about complete absence of thing. So there is no such thing as complete nothingness. God has always just existed. That's what the the theologians mean in the early church when they say that God is being, capital B. Before God created the world, to be and to be God were the exact same thing. God necessarily exists. And so there is no such thing as there just being pure nothingness. Now, the other thing to realize is one of God's attributes, wrath, is better than no attributes of God. It's just not better for you. It's better ontologically. It's better that God is still there. To God, it's better but to you, it's not better. So there's a little bit of a confusion of what we're talking about when we're talking about being in existence. I realize this is very philosophical versus this. So so to say it this way, um, the worst possible thing that could be, which this doesn't even make any sense, is nothingness. And you say, well, Zach, that doesn't make sense. It's worse that the devil exists than if he didn't. And I say, no, no, it's worse that the devil exists to us. It's worse that the devil exists to rebel against God's authority. It's not good in the sense, though, when we talk about existence. So I think that's where the question, the question itself is philosophical. My answer is philosophical. I don't know if that helps. Talk to me after if you still have further questions. Simply, it's this, the, the person's asking this, wouldn't it be worse for God to just not have his presence there at all than to have wrath there? Because at least when wrath is there, there's God. God is there. And what I'm saying is it would be worse if it was possible, but it doesn't mean it's worse for you. It just means worse overall. Okay? For you, it's worse that God's presence is there to punish. Yeah, so uh, just to, 
to clear, so getting out of the realm of, of philosophy, I, I think part of the question is birthed out of this idea that uh, we have in the 21st century that uh, we are afraid of uh, the idea of condemnation. We're afraid of embracing the holiness and wrath and anger of God. Somehow we've, we've kind of neglected all those attributes as if those are bad attributes of God. And so we only want to talk about his love and grace and mercy and kindness. Uh, but his wrath, and mercy, uh, his wrath and anger and jealousy and all those kinds of things are not bad attributes. Those are good attributes for God. And those are biblical attributes, and so we don't want to ignore those. So even if philosophically, and I, and I think Zach's answer said philosophically it's not better, but even if philosophically it would be better, uh, and it would be worse for there to just be the, the mere absence of God's wrath, that's not what the Bible says. So the Bible explicitly says that, God's, uh, that the eternal condemnation that you will face is not merely... Uh, the lack of God's presence, you will actually face, if you're an unbeliever, the presence of God's divine wrath. So even if philosophically we could have that debate, uh, theologically, biblically, the Bible's very clear about uh, uh, the reality of, uh, of uh, his active wrath and not merely passive. Number two, if God is going to make a new heaven and new earth, then that seems to be a physical place. So is hell a physical or merely spiritual place? Yeah, I wouldn't separate when you say physical or merely spiritual, because uh, the two go together, right? So uh, when you go to heaven, you if there's a new heavens, new earth, you're resurrected, the spiritual and the physical go together. We have a tendency to separate those. I think that hell is a spiritual and a physical place, if you want to say it that way. Some sort of realm might be a better way to state it. I don't think you can like go find it. It's not like you dig deep into the earth or you go to another planet and you find it. The idea is just like heaven. Heaven does not just like, you just get a really powerful telescope and you see beyond Pluto, which whether it's a planet or it's a moon, we can debate that later, but you see beyond Pluto and you see heaven. It doesn't work that way. I think heaven and hell are realms, so there has to be some physicality to it or else you in a physical body cannot be there, okay? A physical being can't be in a pure area that's not physical, doesn't have space. That doesn't make any sense. But I think that it is spiritual in the sense that it's more of a realm, not like going to Tahiti or someplace that we would go physically on earth. Um, this, this is a, an interesting question. Why do we typically think of heaven as up and hell as uh, down? And so let me give uh, initial thought. I, I don't know the, the answer, so I'm hoping maybe you've read something on this. Heaven in, uh, in Greek is uh, uh, Uranos. And, uh, and so that word could be used. There's actually, if you're reading in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians maybe, where Paul talks about the third heaven, that's not talking about layers of heaven. That is, in the Greek mindset, uh, especially for uh, a Hebrew thinker, there are uh, different ways that you use this word, uranos. And uh, so you would use that word for the sky, what we would just call the sky. You would use that word for what we would call outer space. Uh, that would be the second usage of that term. And then you'd also use it for what we would call heaven. And, uh, and so that's kind of the idea of heaven. So I think anything above, they kind of considered uh, to be heaven. I'm guessing it has something to do with Greek thought and the abyss or whatever it might be, but I don't know if you ever read anything. <clears throat> well, I think it's true both in Hebrew thought and in Greek thought. There's something natural to humanity that when we think of God, we look up. We see what's beautiful. We see the sky. We see the stars. A lot of people thought the stars were angels and things like that. We have a tendency to look up. And then when we look down at something, it seems to be gross. That's why the, the hell is described as like a pit or a burning sulfur. You see lava. You see all this kind of stuff. And so I think the Bible is using conventional language that humans naturally do to help us conceptualize this. God is equally everywhere. He's not more up than he is down, but we don't ever pray like this, you know, well, we do pray with our heads bowed. But the reason we bow our heads is because we think God's up here, right? He's above us. We never like pray down to the ground or something like that. And so uh, I think a lot of it has to do with just the way humans naturally think. I think the Bible uses that language so we can understand, though God is equally everywhere. He is equally in the middle of the earth as he is on Mars or whatever. And so, uh, so we've, we've talked about this a little bit as we've talked about Roman Catholic theology in the past, but what's the difference between the ideas of, uh, of Hades and purgatory, and where did the idea of purgatory come from? Yeah, so purgatory is, so in Roman Catholic theology, <clears throat> if you die and you're a Christian, 
you go to purgatory. So here's the first difference. Purgatory is just for Christians. If you've made it to purgatory, you're going to make it, okay? And so uh, Hades is just the general abode of all the dead. Purgatory is this Roman Catholic doctrine of where believers go when they die so that they can burn off remaining defilements, okay? It comes from this idea that the view of justification in Roman Catholicism is not the same as in Protestantism. We as Protestants believe that when we repent and trust in Christ, God imputes to us. He gives us the status of being 100% righteous. So we go from evil sinner to 100% righteous, adopted by God, loved by God, just like that. It's zero to 100, okay? In Roman Catholic theology, though, that's not how justification works. Justification is sanctification. As you become a little bit holier, you gain some more justification points. So let's say God demands 100 good points to be saved. By trusting in Christ, you get all the good points as a Protestant. In Roman Catholicism, though, you've got to build it up over time. You get five of the good points at your infant baptism. You get another three when you partake of the Eucharist and the Mass. You get another two when you do penance. But what happens if you die and you're only at 80 good points? You've got to burn off those other 20. And so you do so in a place called purgatory. You burn off those other defilements, and you can borrow good points from other especially holy Christians like Mary and the Apostles. They have what's called a treasury of merit. They're able to take all their good points and combine them in a big celestial bank, and you can borrow some. And if you're saying, that's ridiculous, it is ridiculous, okay? The whole thing is ridiculous. I like Catholics. I love what they do with God, Trinity, Christ, all that's great. Don't love their view of justification, which is why I'm a Protestant, uh, but that's the idea of purgatory. They needed a place. God is perfect. You cannot go into God's presence if you're not perfect. And they realize that you're not perfect, so there has to be a purifying. That's why it's purge, right? You hear that purgatory. You're being purged of your defilements. In Protestantism, there's no need for that because you are 100% righteous in Christ. It's something you're declared to be. So. We had a couple of questions about um, infants and, uh, and other children who die. And so I just wanted to, to briefly mention the fact that we have a blog on that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we don't have like an official position of the church. Not, uh, the elders haven't all wrestled with it to get together. Those that I've talked to, though, I, I know that generally we think that uh, infants who die uh, go to heaven, and uh, they will experience eternal life. Now, the reason, though, uh, is very important. It's not because they're innocent. That's not something that we hold. It's because God is gracious. And, uh, and so uh, I think the big thing that we would want to stress is God is gracious and God is just. We, whether we are uh, an infant or whether we are 100 years old, we are guilty, we are vile, we are wicked, we are deserving of wrath, but God is gracious and kind. And so uh, I would encourage you to go and read that uh, blog for more on that. Anything you want to add? No, the, the, the blog that we have on that is the best resource I've read on that. I didn't write it, so I'm not tooting my own horn. Jeff wrote it. Uh, but, uh, but go read that. It, it, it really walks through the different positions and why. So uh, what's it called? What happens to infants when they die? Something like that. So check that out online. Uh, next, I've heard that the gnashing of teeth is a reference to their grinding their teeth in anger. And hatred for the Lord, is that a poor understanding of the Greek term? I think Dr. Steve wrote that as a dentist. So it's his, uh, his thought. So uh, the, the phrase gnashing of teeth can mean a couple of things. One, it can be uh, used in reference to anger, and the other, it can be used in reference to, uh, to pain. And so I wouldn't necessarily separate those. I, I think there is a sense in which they're grinding their teeth because they are in Pain, and they're also grinding their teeth because they're in anger. And so I don't know that we necessarily have to parse it out. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a matter of understanding the Greek. It would just be a matter of understanding the context. The word itself just means gnashing. Uh, and so the Greek term itself is not going to help us answer that question. It's going to be just the, the, the basis of the context of the, uh, the passages. Anything you want to add? Yeah, the, the, it can mean both. So it talks about an axe where uh, these people get really mad, uh, this mob, and they kind of gnash their teeth. So I think it can mean either one. The reason I pointed out the pain reference is because in context it says weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I think that in that particular verse, it probably is more a reference to pain. But I do think that you gnash your teeth at God in anger eternally. But because it was talking about torment and fire and worm and weeping, uh, because it's paralleled right there with weeping, I think the idea is more sorrow and pain. But it, I do agree that it could mean either one. So. Okay, I have, I have like 10 more questions on here, but we're just going to do one more. And again, if you asked another question that uh, we didn't get to or our answer wasn't sufficient, then come chat with us. Um, since, since non-Christians, sorry, go to a hell waiting room, what is the significance of Judgment Day? Since non-Christians go to a hell waiting room, what's, what's the significance of Judgment Day? It's not to find out where you're going. 
Okay, I think that's what a lot, that's, what, that's where I think that question is birthed out of. You're saying, well, if I'm already waiting judgment or I'm already with Christ, I already know what's gonna happen, so what's the purpose of judgment day? The purpose of judgment day is not for you to figure out whether you're gonna be saved or not. You can know that now. You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to wait till the waiting rooms. You can know that now, whether or not you're gonna be saved or not. The purpose of the judgment day is to stand before a holy God. It's if you're a Christian to remember that Christ has forgiven your sins. If you're lost, it's to feel the shame of condemnation. It's to take a look at your life. You're not saved by your works, but your works evidence whether or not you've really trusted Christ. Someone who's really trusted Christ, their life is different. Somebody who's not trusted Christ, their life is awful. And so what your actions do are they are the evidence of whether or not you have or have not trusted Christ. So the purpose of Judgment Day are those things, not I hope I'm going to get in or something like that. Yeah, the only other thing I would add there is uh, the importance of resurrection. The Bible talks about you will be judged uh, according to the sins done in the body. So you're judged in the body. And so uh, although you are somehow being punished now, if you're a non-believer and, and, and you die, there's some sense of punishment. You can kind of think of death row. There's a sense in which you are, when you're on death row, there is punishment, but you're awaiting a final judgment. And uh, that final judgment for unbelievers will uh, involve a bodily resurrection and all that kind of, uh, kind of stuff. So I think that's just the other thing I would add to that. But Okay, that's it. You want to pray? Sure. Almighty God, we thank you that for those of us in Christ, uh, we have this to fear no longer. And so I pray for anybody in here who uh, is a Christian but just walks away feeling condemned or scared or whatever it might be. Uh, I pray that you would encourage their hearts. I pray that you would let them know that they don't have to have certainty of their salvation to have salvation. You don't demand perfect faith. We always have doubts. We always have wrestles. There are always things we do that make us question whether or not we're Christians. We thank you that you hold fast when we do not. I do pray that though if there is somebody in here who's not a Christian, there is somebody in here who has not clung to the historic Jesus, uh, the Jesus of the church, the Jesus of the New Testament. I pray that uh, uh, if there's someone who is relying on their own good deeds to save them, they think they're saved because they're a good church kid and they, you know, don't, uh, don't curse and don't smoke and do these kind of things. They come to church, they think that that's going to save them. I pray that you'd convict them. I pray that hell would be scary so that they might turn away from that and turn just to Christ. He is our only shelter in the storm, and that includes the storm of your wrath. And so would you uh, uh, convict those that need to be convicted, and would you encourage those that need to be encouraged? We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.